Well, it's good to be back, Community Bible Church. It's been a while. I get my years mixed up these days, so I can't remember if it was... I think we'll probably have... PC will take on new, new, a new terminology instead of post-cultural or whatever. Uh, politically correct, it'll be post-COVID. So. But um, I am really thrilled uh, on the topic today because we're coming to the tail end of the three great festivals of the Jewish seventh month, uh, the month of Tishrei, holiest month of the Jewish year. So we had Rosh Hashanah, the new year, and then and that's on the first day of the month. And then on the 10th day of the month, we observe, we don't celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's a somber, sad day, and you can't eat. Nothing to celebrate, except if you're a believer in Jesus. I'll explain why. And then, five days later, we begin what's technically an eight-day, but now even nine-day festival called Tabernacles, or Sukkot. And Sukkot refers to the little booths that you might see somewhere around. I live in the Holy Land, Brooklyn, so I see them, you know, all over the place. And, and so this lasts eight days. So it's actually a seven-day festival with an eighth day. And in modern Judaism, we add a ninth day. And the ninth day is called Simchat Torah, which means the joy of the Torah, because in Judaism, we read through the entirety of the, of the five books of Moses and most of the, of the prophets and, and the writings, maybe 60%, 70%. And when we finish the Torah, which we are now doing, then we start over again. So in every synagogue, Jewish people hear the five books of Moses every year. And so if you're 50 years old, maybe you didn't hear much when you were one or two years old, but for 50 years you've been hearing the entire five books of Moses if you go to synagogue. And uh, among some more liturgical Christian churches, they call it a lectionary. And uh, so that's what it is. And uh, so... <clears throat> pretty big day. And Simcha Torah, the ninth day, uh, which comes in a few days, the ninth day, that's dancing in the streets and, you know, and, you know, you're allowed to drink. And uh, I had the funniest experience once. I was walking home from the subway in Brooklyn, and it was Simcha Torah. And uh, there were a bunch of, uh, I don't know if you know the Lubavitch or the Chabad, they're very, very active. I know Fred knows they're there, but very, very active Hasidic Jews who are trying to win more secular Jews or Messianic Jews back to true Judaism, right? And uh, so we have a very, I live right by their headquarters in Brooklyn, uh, about 15 blocks from me, but they still have a branch in my neighborhood. And uh, I know who this rabbi is. And so as I'm walking home from the subway, it was almost midnight, you know, and uh, they had boom boxes going <laughs> in a nice, quiet neighborhood. But everybody makes allowances for this. And so they had boom box going with a lot of great Jewish music, you know, and they had probably 75 kids and some rabbis, older guys, you know, just men dancing in the street. And uh, so I come walking by and... Uh, and of course, they're, they're not shy. And he, he just looks at me, he says, are you Jewish? I said, sure. He says, great. He said, come dance. And 
you know, as soon as I got close enough, his breath almost knocked me over, you know? And so I, I came, I, I said, you know, but before I start dancing, there is something you might want to know about me. He says, what could it be? I said, well, you may not want me to dance with you if I tell you. He says, nah, of course. By this time, you know, almost 75 kids and other rabbis are coming in a circle. You know, this is really getting interesting. And I said, well, you know, <clears throat> well, have you, do you know what a Messianic Jew is? He says, I'm a Messianic Jew. I'm waiting for the Messiah. <laughs> I said, well, there's a kind of a different version than I am. I said, so I believe the Messiah has come. Says, Where? <laughs> no peace on the earth, you know, all the things that Jewish people expect. I said, well, you know, listen, I believe in Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah. He looks at me, everybody, silent, you know, you know, surrounded by a bunch of drunk teenagers, you know. And he, he, he looks at me, he says, your mother's Jewish? I said, absolutely, he says. Well, okay, so what? Let's dance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, it's a lot of fun being a Jewish believer in Jesus, I got to tell you. Never a dull moment. So we're going to look at uh, this great festival of Sukkot. We're going to look at it a little bit differently today. So if you <clears throat> have your Bibles, uh, I decided not to do a PowerPoint today, if that's okay. I'm just, sometimes I just get tired of PowerPoints. I was actually developing PowerPoints all morning, and I said, you know, I'm not going to preach today. So in Leviticus chapter 23, this way we all look at our Bibles. Leviticus 23, verses 1 through uh, one and 2, which we read. The Lord spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed time. The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. Now, the funny thing about this is, you know, you know, a lot of people always like to think that they have better translations than the translators, and I'm one of them. And, uh, and so, but I've studied it a lot. And so the word appointed times is, there's only one word, but we translate it with two words. And that's because I think the one word, if you translate it, at least in modern Hebrew, it's a very dull word and not very biblical. And it doesn't sound like the Bible. And so the Hebrew is mo'ed, mo'ed. And mo'ed simply means appointment. So, I mean, imagine reading this. The Lord's appointments are these. I mean, it sounds mundane, doesn't it? And so the translators probably wisely make it a little bit more majestic and say the appointed times. You can almost hear, you know, uh, the voice of God in the Ten Commandments, you know, and it, it elevates the whole thing. But it's really just an appointment. And so God chose the Jewish people, gave them the law at Mount Sinai, and in the course of giving them the law, what you can do and what you can't do, he gave them a calendar so that they knew how to implement the law and when to do what they were supposed to do. And so you have one festival a week, the Sabbath, and it's a dress-up occasion for, for more religious Jewish people. And uh, so we have the Sabbath. And then in the next 12 months, we have seven great festivals. So you have four in the spring, beginning with Passover, and you have three in the fall. See, it's complicated being Jewish. But it's all from the Bible. Now, 
What do these festivals mean? Well, it means you get a lot of time off of work if you're religious. <laughs> Think of it. You know, a lot, most of the ultra-Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn, they get, they get nine days off, you know, and it doesn't cut into their summer vacation. And so, so you, you have, a, a, you have a, schools are closed, you know, for a few of the days the stores are open, but most of the days the stores aren't open during Feast of Tabernacles. And you're actually supposed to sit in your booth and you're supposed to uh, eat in your booth. If you're really religious, you go to sleep in your booth. And of course, these booths, remember this is the fall, these booths uh, are not supposed to have a full roof there. You're supposed to be able to see the stars. So you understand the frailty of life. And so, you know, the, there is a, a question in Jewish tradition about what, you, what do you do when it rains? I mean, we cover everything. And uh, you know the answer to that one, don't you? Get an umbrella. Now that's not rabbinic literature. It's basically you're commanded to sit out there. So experiencing the cold and the rain and the stars and the sky, that's all part of the thing because it's supposed to remind you of what life was like for the Israelites when they traveled through the desert for 40 years. And if you remember in Deuteronomy, it says that even their, even their shoes, whatever kind of shoes they were wearing, they didn't wear out. And so God impeccably took care of the Israelites in, during those 40 years. And so when we're sitting in that booth, we're reminded of our frailty because you don't even use nails for these booths. Okay? So you're reminded of the frailty of life and, your, and the totality of your dependence upon God. And, so it's, and, and you get to eat a lot, unlike Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so you get to experience God's bounty. In fact, the booths are all decorated with hanging fruit and things like that because it reminds us of the final harvest in Israel. The first harvest at Passover, grain, barley. The last harvest is fruit in, at the end of the seventh month. And so it's, it's, it's really a very joyful holiday. Nothing said about Sukkot. But again, the great theme is that it reminds us of the frailty of life and of God's provision for the Jewish people through the wilderness. Uh, we shake the lulav and the esrog. Now, uh, I should have brought one with me, but it cost 40 bucks to bring one, so I just didn't do it. Okay? So the lulav and the esrog, we, we get one per congregation. And uh, you shake it to the east, and you shake it to the west, and shake it to the north and the south and above and below. Again, to say that God is the one who's above all and over all. So if you look at verses 33, uh, again, you'll see, again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. On the 15th day of the seventh month is the Feast of Booth, Tabernacles, Sukkot, for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. Don't work. For seven days, present an offering by fire to the Lord. Then there's an eighth day added. On the eighth day, have a holy convocation again. Present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no, no laborious work. And uh, down, uh, it, beginning in verse 39, you can see more about these leafy trees. Actually, look at verse 40. On the first day, take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. And so for seven days, we gather in the synagogue and we shake these things. We bind them together and we, we shake them. Have you seen it, some of you? Yeah. And you can look it up online. You'll see. 
and, and, and you shake them. And so you're fulfilling uh, this commandment. And then verse 42, live in booths, Sukkot, for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. And so that's the way we fulfill this, these commandments. The wonderful thing about the Jewish holidays is that they're so tactile. They're so physical. They're physical lessons that teach you spiritual lessons. And uh, this is God's way of teaching. You know, uh, Jesus didn't invent that, you know, with farming parables. And so it's, a, it's just a very Jewish way to explain God's truths. Now, a little bit more. So <clears throat> all the festivals point to a greater fulfillment. You see, in Judaism, we all know that these festivals are what we in, in the church call types or prophecies in picture of something that would come later. And Judaism knows that. So everybody knows that these festivals are begging for fulfillment. For example, uh, Passover. So Passover is the first festival. It celebrates our redemption from Egypt. And in Judaism, everybody knows that one day we're going to have a greater redemption when God gathers the Jewish people to the land of Israel and we feast, and we don't eat it. We don't eat leavened bread anymore, which I hope is true. And and so it points to a greater day of redemption when Messiah comes. That's the teaching in Judaism. And even think of the Sabbath, once a week. The Sabbath in Judaism points to a day when the whole earth will be at rest under the rule of Messiah. So it's no it's the Looking for a future fulfillment is not strange to Judaism. And therefore, it should not be strange to us as Christians either. Because we have a, a very clear sense that so many things in the Old Testament are either direct predictions or prophetic types of things to come. Isn't that true? Where would we be without it? We talk about Jesus being the fulfillment of what? <laughs> of, of the Old Testament, of the prophecies, of the types. Okay. Now, you remember that Jesus is called the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world by John the Baptist, his, his cousin. We know that Jesus died for our sins, not on the Day of Atonement, but on Passover. Why? because the shed blood of the lamb was poured out and put on the doorposts and lintel of the house so that judgment did not fall upon the firstborn male of the Jewish homes. You remember that? So that was a prophetic fulfillment. When Jesus died at Calvary, it was a prophetic fulfillment of the first festival, Passover. But I want to tell you, as believers in Jesus, um, we have not only, and we are not. We not only have the fulfillment of, I believe, all these festivals in one way or another, in Jesus, but we have a twofold fulfillment of these prophecies. Why? Well, I can't tell you exactly, 
except that I believe, maybe you do, that Jesus is coming again. <laughs> and so we have technically what I would call a double fulfillment, not that it has two meanings, but Jesus has two comings. Therefore, these prophecies are fulfilled in two different ways. And there's no greater illustration of this than the Feast of Tabernacles. So can we go to the New Testament now? All right. So make a, a quick right. Go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And we're going to see the two fulfillments of the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe you haven't noticed it before. So in John chapter 1, verse 14, very well-known verse, but uh, I paid a lot of good money in seminary to uh, learn Greek. In fact, <clears throat> I had two years of, of Greek. I did uh, in six years. So, so beginning in verse 14, and the word became flesh. Remember that one? Of course you do. And dwelt among us. Well, of course, the Greek word for dwelt there should be really translated tabernacled. And in some versions of the Bible, it is. It's skenate. It is tabernacle. So why? Because the New Testament understood the Old Testament. Uh, his flesh was like the booth that covered his glory and the essence of his deity. We give the word essence. Get, I get Greek sometimes. You know, I just can't help it. And so the word became flesh, and he tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of chesed ve'emet, full of grace and truth. A very common uh, phrase, two words pulled together in the Old Testament. And they usually speak of the character of God, grace and truth. I remember when I was in Bible college, I, I learned it was very particularly, I mean, I'm not far from where that Bible college, well, it was Northeastern Bible College, some of you know, remember that. It was, a, it, was the, it was the Bible college in New Jersey that always beat kings in soccer. I got some of you there, okay. And so uh, when, when I was in my first class there, there was a whole debate as to whether or not there was grace in the Old Testament. Now, I'm a new believer. I'm in Bible college. I never should have been there. I was only five months old in the Lord. They put me in these advanced classes because I was Jewish. <laughs> I remember being, being in, in, in a course on the minor prophets because I was Jewish. My first year was a fifth-year class, you know, and I had no idea what they were talking about. But anyway, the one thing I did know is the teacher was saying now there's a debate as to whether or not there was grace in the Old Testament. Now, I'm sitting there. I'm a new believer. Well, isn't grace part of the character of God? I mean, I grew up in a modern Orthodox Jewish home, and went, I went to Hebrew school five days a week, not three days a week, not two days a week. And I, was, I went to an Orthodox synagogue, unlike most of my friends which, who were conservative or reformed. And so I knew what I didn't believe. How's that? Well, what I, and I felt guilty over what I didn't believe. <laughs> Some people didn't. Grace is not just something God does. It's, some, it's what God is. 
How, if there was God in the Old Testament, how could there not be grace in the Old Testament? So what does that mean? Well, he is full of grace and truth because that's what it means. That's the glory. You see, in Exodus 32, or 33, 34, Moses said, show me your glory. And when God himself passed through the cleft of a rock where Moses was hiding, if you remember that there were these, the voice came from heaven that exclaimed, extolled the character of God. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's kind. God is gracious. And there's nothing like looking at Jesus and seeing the grace of God. Well, certainly that is part of the fulfillment, isn't it? That Jesus tabernacled among us. So if I tell you the Feast of Tabernacles points to Jesus, it does. You know what I mean? But it doesn't stop there. Okay? Make a further right. Go to John chapter 7. Now this... I don't know if any of you read them, but this one reads like a Joel Rosenberg novel. So Joel, Joel and I are good friends. He just did a nonfiction book, uh, Enemies, and Alien, uh, Enemies and Allies. You should buy it. It's good. I'm not selling it, but it's good. Really good book. So look at chapter 1, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Uh, quick aside about the Gospel of John. Whenever you see the word Jews in a negative light, it's not because John was an anti-Semite. John was Jewish. But in, in a lot of academic and scholarly uh, communities and in the Jewish community, the Gospel of John is the whipping boy of Christianity because it seems to be anti-Semitic. It's not anti-Semitic at all. You have one Jew talking about another Jew. So it's not anti-Semitic. It's a little bit of a family battle in there. But um, you really need to see that these are the Jewish leaders who were against Jesus. If you look at it that way, and John, you'll be fine. Okay? It wasn't all Jews because the Jew was writing it. So. so he was unwilling to walk in Judea because of the Jewish leaders who were against Jesus who were seeking to kill him. That was true. Now the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, was near. All right, so that establishes John chapter 7 as happening during Sukkot. All right? So his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you're doing, but no one does anything in secret when he publicly, when he himself seeks to be known in public. Now, his brothers are chiding him. And if you remember, at that, I don't think his brothers believed he was the Messiah. At that point, they were giving him a hard time. And verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. Oh, boy. Anyway, that's how I know Jesus was Jewish and from Brooklyn. And then, so you go through the rest of this chapter, and it's, it, it leaves you breathless because He's not going to the festival. Then he goes to the festival. They try and get him during the festival. He escapes from there trying to get him. He hides until the end of the festival. Then he reappears. I mean, it's like so exciting, uh, John chapter 7. 
Look at verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, began to teach. The Jews were astonishing. How has this man learned so much, etc.? My teaching is not mine. And uh, then he goes on, and then the opponents say, did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you, oh, he said, none of you carry out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, here it is. You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus said, I did one deed, and you marvel for this reason. Moses, has, anyway, he goes on and on and on. So there's this battle going all throughout John chapter 7 until verse 37. So he hides that he comes back on what's called Hoshana Rabbah, which is the seventh day of the feast. It's the great day, Hoshana Rabbah, the first or the great day, the primary day of the feast. This is the wrap-up day. Now, in the New Testament, during, which is the second temple period in Jewish history, there was a ceremony that is uh, in, noted in, described in detail in what's known as the Talmud, kind of the commentary on the Old Testament. Not actually, but, but it's, um, it's an interesting book if you've ever seen it. It's about that big. Not that big. Anyway. So the Talmud describes the ceremony of the water drawing. Water drawing. I'm so glad I'm preaching in New York. I don't have to be that careful about my accent. Water drawing, D-R-A-W-I-N-G, not drawing, okay? So the ceremony of the water drawing. And what happens is the priests and the Levitical choir uh, all gather together, hundreds and hundreds, and they pick up these giant urns and they march down to the Pool of Siloam, remember, John 5, in Pool of Siloam, which was living water. It's coming in from outside. And they fill up these big urns, and then they march back, with choirs and loudest and, I mean, all, every instrument that they can carry. And uh, it's just this glorious, glorious festival. And then they come back to the actual altar in the temple, and they march around it seven times, crying out, Hoshienu, Hoshienu, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. And they march around seven times, hundreds of them with music, with choir. And then they pour the water on the horns or corners of the altar. And as they do that, they remind God, they cry out to God, Lord, save us, Lord, save us. And then they add from Joel chapter 2, pour out your spirit upon us. Because the Jewish People, it's not, it didn't take Christians to figure out that sometimes water was a symbol of the Spirit. Well, that was in Ezekiel 36 anyway. And so they cried out, Lord, save us, Lord, save us. Lord, send your Spirit, Lord, send your Spirit. And they began shouting it, and Josephus even describes it and says it was cacophonous. It was loud. It was, it was almost a madhouse. Lord, save us, Lord, save us, Lord, send your Spirit. And in the Talmud, we don't know how far back it goes. I assume it was a first century tradition, but we don't know for sure, for honesty's sake. And that is that the pouring out of the Spirit in the last days, Joel 2, was linked to the coming of the Messiah. Certainly today it is in Judaism. So Lord, save us. Send your Spirit. Send your Messiah. Save us. Save us. So in the midst of this incredible racket with this 
these voices crying out to heaven for salvation, verse 37, this probably thin, maybe somewhat muscular, young, itinerant rabbi from the Galilee steps up in the middle of this incredible event and listen to what he says. The last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. He had to cry out because no one would hear him. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This water, living water from Siloam that we're pouring on the altar will never quench your spiritual thirst. I am the only way your spiritual thirst will be quenched because I am who you were asking for. And then he adds, but this he spoke of the Spirit, making the link with Joel chapter 2, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, he had not died, he didn't rise, didn't ascend, and that was his glorification. The fulfillment of the festival was in the one who tabernacled among us and who gives us living water that gives us life. Now, that's not the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, but it's getting close to the end of my sermon. So that's not, so the end of the Feast of Tabernacles actually it's in Zechariah chapter 14. Can you turn there briefly? I love the name Zechariah. Zechariah. Zach. So Zechariah means God remembers. And God remembers his great covenant with the Jewish people, even though uh, Zechariah was sort of an intertestamental prophet. But he speaks about the very last days, and beginning in, in chapter 12 of Zechariah, he speaks about the return of the Messiah. You know that. They look unto me whom they have pierced, and then the Messiah comes, and he destroys the enemies of the Jewish people. And he establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem. But that's not the end of it. Verse 16 of Zechariah 14. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will have a change of heart <laughs> and will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there'll be no rain on them. During Sukkot, it's the final harvest. We actually pray for rain in the synagogue. It's the only time Jewish people pray for rain. We pray for rain in the synagogue. So this is sort of the opposite. If they don't worship, if the Gentiles don't come up to Jerusalem, celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with the Jewish people during the kingdom, then God will withhold rain from them. And in that day, verse 20, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and so on. 
And the day is coming when the Gentiles will come up and celebrate the feast. Well, let me cut to the chase. You see, this is not new. Because God, in choosing the Jewish people in Genesis 12, 3, said, I'll bless those who bless thee and curse those who curse thee, and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. As you read throughout the Old and New Testament, we see the Jewish people brought the scriptures to the Gentiles, brought the Messiah to the Gentiles. And the day is coming when the turning of the Jewish people, Romans 11, to the Lord will bring about the second coming of Jesus. And then he comes and he reigns. And who's invited into the kingdom? The Gentiles who choose to be obedient to him. And so that's going to be a glorious day. And if you're not Jewish, I'll see you there. It's going to be an awfully large booth to include us all. But I know the food's going to be great. The Messianic banquet, just think of all the lox and cream cheese at the Messianic banquet. It's, it's going to be, and brisket, Fred, of course, brisket. So it's, it's going to be great. So the Feast of Tabernacles looks forward to a double fulfillment prophetically to the first coming of the Messiah and then to that glorious second coming when he establishes his kingdom on earth. And all who love him are invited in to rejoice. Well, don't have to wait for the kingdom, though, do you? You don't have to wait for that physical fulfillment because he actually invites the Gentiles into a very Jewish thing, faith in him. And we're one in him. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we drink of the same spirit, don't we? And so the church is actually a prophetic portrait of the kingdom to come. Sukkot's rich in, in prophetic truth. And I hope that um, you've been blessed this morning. But the greatest blessing for me is that all of this creates a beautiful setting to understand the true glory of the jewel. And the jewel for me is Jesus. He makes everything shine. Let's pray. Abba, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that as we try to weave together your truth in the Old and New Testament that you wrote through the hands of your servants, we pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding and grace and that, Lord, uh, you would help us during these very difficult times Lord, that you would help us look forward to the glorious future that awaits the children of God. Give us hope, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I have just two commercial announcements. One, please take this brochure, rip that piece off, fill in your name, address, email, phone number, social security number, and... <laughs> brokerage accounts, but just put it all in here, okay? We really do want to send you the Chosen People newsletter. We work so hard on it. You should get it. 
you know, and it's filled with teaching like this. And you can get it online, but you know, we're, we're still printing it. Some of you are still reading physical things. And, and so we'd love to send that to you. So just fill that out and leave it on the book table. And on the book table, you'll see, again, because you've seen it before, my wife Sahav and I wrote the book, The Fall Feasts of Israel. And uh, so I didn't tell you everything that's in the book. We'd be here for a few months. So you can just grab this book. And, uh, and also, we have another book called Israel, the Church in the Middle East. And this is pretty good. This gives you an idea of, of what's happening in the Middle East. It's a pretty new book, and it allows you to look at it through a biblical lens. So that'll be on the back, as well as some other books as well. God bless you. Thank you. See you at Sunday school very soon.